Hello, I'm Ellie Mayo Hagen. I'm Owen Jones. I'm Matt Zarb Cousin. I'm Rachel Shabby. And it's the Agitpod Christmas special. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Woohoo! Socialism's back, baby, and it's never been sexier. As evidenced, I'd say, by the people sitting around this very table. Welcome to our esteemed guests. Um, so, we thought we would do a review of the year. You know, it's that time of year. It's been a really quiet year, very uneventful, so... Yeah. Li- li- not very much material to sink those teeth into. What sticks out for you guys? What's your moment year? of the year? But you, apart, Don't, don't say the election. Don't know how we're going to pass the time. It was such a, <laughs> such a quiet, quiet year. year. <laughs> Fewer people died this year compared to 2016. Fewer famous people, didn't they? You know, yeah, we have, like, remember when they were, and Brucey died. George Michael died at like, the end Michael of last year. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a, that was a kick in the teeth. Yeah. 2016 was a massacre it, for it, it, the it celebs. Was, it was shit, wasn't it? Yeah. But 2017, on the other hand, I think was a very good year. Like, That's a very whole, silver lining. I think, I think it was. I think you know, the, the election, election night, I know that you... <laughs> Wasn't Matt and Owen, you were together on the election night, is that right? We uh, we were at ITV and we did um, a picture of us um, clinking some pretty cheapo champagne, just saying ITV. It was was really cheap champagne, obviously. I think it was Prosecco, probably, yeah. I mean, just saying, nothing's too good for the workers. Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, what was your, do you have a highlight other than the election night? I mean, it's hard to get beyond the high of the election (laughs) night, isn't it? But Mm. I think, I think sort of... Not just that night, but also what it changed. So, you know, it's a year of extremes, isn't it? So it's like it started off with, you know, this real low and thinking we're in this really kind of regressive time of, you know, Trump, Brexit, uh, far right in Europe, um, this kind of authoritarian, reactionary wave we were in. And the fact that the election sort of turned all that, but also was a moment of hope going forward, I think. That's what I take away from from this year that that the possibilities of of both. Yeah, because the the year started with Trump's inauguration. Yeah. yeah. So let's come back to the election. I think we should save the best for last. Sure. Yeah. So that's a little little treat for you. Also, as an incentive to keep listening because some of the other stuff might be dross for all we know. But no, yeah. it will be good stuff. Come on. <laughs> Only gold. Do Only stay. the best for our listeners. <laughs> me and uh, me Please and stay. <laughs> we need the downloads. <laughs> That's quite a desperate pitch. It was pretty desperate. Me and Ellie were in America for the inauguration. I remember that day very well. I remember being in a bar, needed a few beers. Uh, no, but I remember the Trump speech and the bar staff just had their hands over their heads going, fucking hell. And then the barman saying, well, I'm an old man, doesn't bother me, you lot are fucked. Yeah, I was in a, I spent most of the inauguration sandwiched together with uh, some hardcore Trump fans who'd travelled from very far away, like from Texas and North Carolina, to come and see the inauguration. So I spent about six hours that day. I could hear Trump's voice sort of echoing over Washington. And the rest of the time, because obviously, like, the people in the queue were very fascinated by the presence of some British people. So we struck up conversations with lots of them. And so, and for the first, like, hour and a half, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. And then after that, I was like, I hate these fascists. I want to go home. <laughs> but I, th- I think it did confirm, though, I mean... Obviously, it's appalling. His politics are appalling, and the fact that he's president is obviously a massive issue and not not a good thing. But it did confirm that people wanted a departure from the status quo. Mm. It was it was the second event in the Western world after Brexit, where you thought actually people do want to change. And even if it's a, you know rolling the dice, so mm. to speak, and think I'm going to go this just alt right sort of crazy guy, uh, they'd rather that than the neoliberal kind of status quo candidate. And I think Bernie would have won if he was the Democrat nominee, but 
I think it did just show that it consolidated that idea that people do want to change. And unless the left responds to that, which obviously we have done here, then it's not going to make it get any traction. But I think the left needs to respond to it in a in a much more sort of intersectional way. I mean, a lot of people say Bernie would have won, but actually one of the reasons Bernie might not have won is that he didn't manage to do that intersectional thing and, and appeal to you know the black vote and the female vote in quite the way that was required to bring a turnout. And I, I remember like, so around the inauguration, so I remember in the months leading up to, to that, you know, I'd, I'd be constantly in touch with um, historians, like 30s historians, his, uh, uh, experts on fascism. And I'd be like calling them up every so often during the campaign saying, is it fascism yet? And they'd say, no, no, not really, not very close, but not yet. Around about the time of the inauguration and the speech and then the Muslim ban, sorry, the ban on people from countries that just happen to be majority Muslim. Muslim ban. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they kind of went, yeah, <laughs> actually, no, this is, this is now, we are now in the realms of that. And I think we would be doing a disservice to left-wing politics if we didn't factor in that people, not necessarily saying that people are, people are racist to vote for Trump, but certainly they were pre prepared to overlook racism to vote for Trump. And I think, you know, unless the, the left really grapples with that as much as the sort of economic uh, message that was exposed both by Trump and by Brexit, I don't think we're going yeah, I mean, to get to a progressive kind of... Because yeah, I always thought with the Trump phenomenon, there was always this false choice between either it's white lash, it's the backlash against the successes actually of women on the one hand, of African-Americans, of LGBT, of, of trans people, the so-called bathroom bills where yeah. Republicans used, uh, you know, introduced legislation to ban trans people from toilets which masked their gender identity and so on. That all of that, you know, it was just that. Or it was economic dislocation, stagnating wages, the fact male workers on average were poorer than they were 30 years ago, the disappearance of traditional jobs, not least because of free trade agreements which Clintonian... Uh, centrism had, had yeah. itself promoted, but it was it's not. I mean, it's a false choice, isn't it? I mean, I do look back, you know, that on you know November twenty sixteen, because obviously I'm sure you know I'm a man here, so I need to be careful. But misogyny clearly played a role. But I would say Indonesia. Men always need to be careful. But I mean, that's what I'd like to hear from you on that, because <laughs> Bangladesh and and Pakistan have elected female presidents and prime ministers, and they're, they're, I'd say, significantly more misogynistic. But misogyny clearly played a role. But equally, it seemed to me that the old centrist formula that was triumphant across the Western world in the 1990s, the Clintons, the Blairs, Schroeder, Jospin, all, they were all in power. And, you know, the irony is they used to say to the left, you're stuck in the 70s, you're stuck in the past. And today's form of centrism, which just saw as an act of an article of faith, we just need to rerun that formula. And against Trump, yes, I know he lost the popular vote and all the rest of it, but he should have been, you know, he should have been, Clinton, any candidate should have been unbeatable against Trump. You know, an asteroid hit Mercy more likely. <laughs> and the fact is that to me, as well as the, de the demise of European social democratic parties who themselves are wedded to third way politics across Western Europe shows that that old formula doesn't work because people are angry and frustrated. They want to press the big red button they're told not to press. And at the end of the day, a establishment form of centrism, which seems wedded to an economic system, which has self-evidently failed, is not going to mobilise people. And that's why partly Trump won, because a lot of people who would have voted Democrat didn't come out and vote, did they? Yeah, I think really? from having been there during the period of the inauguration, for me, like that was the story of the 
2016 American election, it was not actually a surge for the far right in America, although obviously Trump winning has emboldened Nazis to organize in public um, in American towns and cities. But I think the real story for me was the collapse in the Democratic vote. Because, um, you know, I'm, when I met all of these, like, Trump supporters, I, I sort of expected... I don't know what I expected. I guess I expected it to be a more complex picture than it was. And I just met them, I was just like, oh, you're just like Daily Mail readers. You're not that interesting. Like, they're very nice people, like, you know, aside from their politics. But, like, their politics aren't that surprising or interesting. They're just Republicans. It's not that... But then, but the thing that I um, really found striking was just the sheer number of Americans, particularly black working class Americans that I spoke to, who just hadn't voted. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they hadn't voted, I asked like everybody that I that would lend me an ear, which was a lot of people because you know I, they were sort of quite curious as to why I was there and all this kind of stuff. It was always because essentially what Clinton was offering was Obama's third term. And for a lot of people, two was enough. Mm. And two yeah. didn't do enough. Yeah. And so they just, it wasn't that they were like rejecting Clinton so much as they just didn't see a reason to, to, to go and vote. You know, yeah. it, it was much more sort of disillusioned than an outright rejection or an angry vote for Trump. It was just like a sense of dis- disillusionment and kind of decay in what she was offering them. And that to me was the story of that election. I absolutely agree. I think that the um, economic dislocation and economic insecurity is a breeding ground for the far right. Politics ultimately is about like storytelling, like telling people, a, giving people a narrative as to why things are the way they are. And then from that, you can extrapolate a, a solution. And ideally, you want to orientate that so your solution seems the most uh, sort of viable or most sensible. And if there's in an absence of a narrative from the left about why, you know, jobs were moving abroad, why inequality was rising. It, it just created that vacuum for Trump to come in and say, not just I'm going to bring the jobs home, bring you know, bring all the factories back to, to, to the US, but also that, oh yeah, it's the Muslims as well, and it's the, the immigrants and, and appropriate those things. Uh, and I do think that there is a real tendency here among particularly the, obviously the liberal commentariat to this, say this, well, these are sensible people and they were kind of duped by the Russians into voting for Trump yeah, yeah, yeah. and duped by the Russians into voting for Brexit. Was it the Brexit? Russians who told Clinton never to visit Milwaukee through the whole campaign? Oh, no, was it Wisconsin? <laughs> Wisconsin or something. And Which also to do these multi-million, you know, these million pound speeches for, for bankers, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Matt. No, absolutely. And uh, completely the wrong message and terrible optic doing all of that and getting into bed, looking like you're getting into bed with the establishment which has failed so many people, particularly since the financial crisis. When, when, the, when Labour lose a general election here, there's a massive introspection among the Liberal commentariat. They say, right, Labour needs to look at itself. What have the Tories done right? Basically, what can we take from the Conservatives to win next time? And when Brexit happened, it was, oh, these people, they didn't know what they were voting for. Mm. Uh, they, they, were, they were duped by the, the, the Leave campaign. The Russians were you know, telling them what to do and all this. And there hasn't been that introspection. And I'm not saying that Brexit is the solution to people's problems, because it's not, obviously, and we're seeing that play out now. But there is a reason why they voted for Brexit. Mm-hmm. And unless you address the fundamental reasons why Leave won, mm-hmm. then you're not going to win the next election. And I think that's why May struggled so much. And I'm sorry, I know we get onto that oh. later. Oh. You... Yeah, go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, but I, I completely agree with that. You know, like there's, there's been a complete lack of uh, introspection 
um, as to why people would have voted for Brexit and for Trump and sort of missing the, the economic and the, actually the, the, de the democratic element, the fact that people have felt so discommunicated and disenfranchised from politics for a very long time. But what I would um, caution though is, that, you know, we saw this trend in the last year and it was coming from the sort of liberal left saying, oh, the left has been too obsessed with identity mm, politics. Yeah, and yeah. I would caution against that. I would say, actually, if, if, the, if the black vote and the, and the isn't coming out for you, then that's an indication that you need to amplify uh, progressive politics and not minimize it. And there's, this bit, there's been this tendency from the far right. It's a real far right trick. And to be fair, you know, the left has been warning since the economic crash about how um, this kind of economic uncertainty will create this sort of fertile breeding ground mm. for the far right. That's precisely what the left was saying since 2008, um, saying that we need some accountability in this, um, that austerity would be the wrong way to go mm. in this. Um, but there's this tendency in the far right to bind um, neoliberal economic policies with socially liberal identity, you know, progressive policies. And, you know, there's been a, we, we need to resist that. The two are not linked. You can be progressive economically and progressive socially. And that's, that's the bit, I think. We need that holistic progressiveness that binds all those things together, because that's how you animate your voter base and persuade them not to stay at home. I mean, exactly. I mean, well, I mean, you know, the majority of working class people are not white men, particularly in the United States, but also in Britain increasingly so, particularly amongst younger people. The younger you are, the more diverse working class yeah. people tend to be, of course. But I mean, on that, I mean, as, as well on what Matt said there about Russia, I do think there's this issue of, of liberal denial, which is basically this sense of the entitlement that so-called liberals or centrists had. They seem to think they should be in power and there's just been some weird administrative error that's happened and <laughs> there's nothing to do with their own political failures. You know, it's, it's basically what they've ended up doing, weirdly, is imitating caricature of the left they always have, yeah. which is, uh, which is backward-looking, uh, stuck in the past, uh, dogmatic, um, know what they're against but not what they're for, uh, believing in false consciousness that the people out there are just duped and brainwashed and they don't know what's really good for them, looking for traitors, not converts. All of those things, they've actually, it's, you know, rather than say to themselves, hang on a minute, we were dominant in the 1990s mm. um, at a time when economic growth and living standards all existed in relative abundance in the Western world, and you had the collapse of the <laughs> of the Stalinist bloc and all the rest of it. But in the world of post-financial crisis, post, you know, in, in the war and terror and all the rest of it, and, and, and living standards and everything that's happened in, in the last few years, this inability to say, maybe, just maybe, it's not that people are being duped, it's actually that the lived experience of people and the political dogma we've been peddling on a collision course and they just can't what do you mm. think well one thing that we were talking about before we started recording was grenfell tower which we were saying that that was you know a symbol of something really changing in the sense that like it seemed to be the culmination of all of the problems of austerity over the last since 2010 you know the fact that the consequences of ignoring the voices of working class people you know many of whom in grenfell were people of color They've been warned for years that the, the tower was unsafe, but they were ignored. There was cuts to fire safety, you know, the cladding was cheap. It really did seem to represent something beyond that, the fire itself. I think that was why it was such an enormous moment this year, is because it wasn't just 
a horrible catastrophe for the people who lived in it. It was also, it seemed to be a collective failure of the way that we organise ourselves as a country, an avoidable, it was an avoidable catastrophe. Mm. That was why it was so, I think that's why it still is in the news all the time. It's still something that people talk about. It seemed to me to be like, an in, it wasn't an accident, it was an injustice. It was like we'd gone backwards. That's, you know, that you don't expect that, that, that sort of thing to happen now. We're in 2017, you know, maybe 50 years ago or something that might have happened. We didn't have fire safety regulations, but it's like we've gone backwards as a country, and we have. And I think what people, particularly in the commentariat, sorry, I know that they're enemy number one at the moment, but they don't seem to grapple or grasp with the fact that the financial crisis in, in 50 years' time will be considered a, a much bigger incident than the Wall Street crash. It was a fundamentally, it caused an economic re uh, global recession. We're still paying for it 10 years down the, down the line. It's caused austerity. If it has it had a role uh, implicitly in Brexit and Trump and this political shift across the world and a paradigm shift and the rise of the far right in Europe. This, act, this should have changed, the system should have been changed and reformed there and then. Mm. But as, as what's happening now is it's sort of seeping through and it's seeping through in incidents like that. I think, I think you're right, but I would actually, I would frame it even wider. I mean, I, it, it, it's, it's a crisis of neoliberalism that became so, that Grenfell was so emblematic <laughs> of, you know, this completely unavoidable tragedy um, that happened in Richard's borough in the richest city in one of the richest countries in the world in 2017, that was what was so jarring about it, that the, the, the impossibility of, of human life coming to an end in this way, it was just so devastating, but also such a devastating indictment of a, of a system that had progressively, over those years, allowed that to happen by, by removing um, people's voice um, and agency over their own lives by removing people's voice from uh, democracy that inc increasingly seemed to have less and less to do with them and looked less and less like them in terms of the people that were in it. And, and I think that that that's feeds into Brexit as well, that it's not just people responding to austerity or, or, or the economic crash. It's no coincidence the period of, of uh, membership to the EU coincides with a period of neoliberalism in the UK. It's no coincidence that, that, that you know, communities have been neglected and wealth inequalities have widened and people have felt uh, that their voices don't count in the system that is supposed to serve them for that period of time and has therefore delivered all that frustration to the wrong address, mm -hmm. which is Brexit, yeah. rather than Neoliberalism. Exactly. I mean, I, I mean, just on that point about Grenfell Tower is, you know, the rights kind of narrative in terms of their. It was a bogeyman story, wasn't it? The winter of discontent in the in the late seventies, when after you had mass inflation across the Western world because of the oil price shock and the collapse of the international financial framework, and then unions went on strike to try and get their wages in line with inflation. Um, but that was used. Uh, that story is the. Uh, you know, kind of like a story the right used to kind of frighten kids at night kind of thing, you know, and it was seen as the, you know, when the dead one buried and the rest of it, but it was seen rubbish as... Rubbish on the streets. Rubbish on the streets. The we death, know the script, don't we? But the death <laughs> knell of, of collectivism, of statism and, and ushering in the neoliberal uh, paradise, which has delivered such prosperity for all since. But but I think Grenfell Tower is is the equivalent in, in, in a very real, meaningful sense, not a myth in, in the way the wind of discontent is presented, 
in that it, the lack of voice of working class people who over and over again warned there would be a fire mm. in which people would die, the only way people would listen, they said. Yeah. The failure to with the housing crisis because of its the abdication of government responsibility to the market. The lack of fire regulations, it's red tape, isn't it? The lack of fire sprinklers, it costs money. The cladding that was chosen, which was cheaper uh, and flammable because money means more than the safety of people's lives. I mean, that summed up to me, the, it, just, the, just the what is needed isn't the tinkering with the system. This is what the third way presented itself as, the human, you know, neoliberalism with a human face, which is impossible. But it, 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 it's that the system has to be completely overthrown. We don't, we're not here to tinker. We're not here to fiddle about with the system. We're here to get rid of it because it's a bankrupt system that doesn't just isn't just a buffer against the realization of people's needs and aspirations, but is actually, as we saw there, a threat to people's lives as well. As you as you've said for many years, Owen, uh, um, you know, the, we're, we're not we're not on the left because you know, we're ide ideological and because we're you know idealists or whatever. We don't live in the real world. The main reason is obviously you know that does come into it, but it's because we we think that. That those policies and that worldview is popular with people, and it is. And uh, you know, the polling shows that. Polling shows that left-wing <laughs> policies are very popular. They want something different. People want something different. They want to change. Even things like the maximum wage. You know, when Jeremy said you know he supported a maximum wage on the Today programme back in January, uh, in the afternoon uh, they were doing vox pops in Peterborough. I think it was ITV. Everyone there said, yeah, we, we support the idea of a maximum wage. And then the polling came out, and I think 66% of people support the maximum wage. A lot it, of Tories as well. A lot of Tories. Yeah, yeah, with rail, well, yeah. nationalisation, a lot of yeah. Tory votes support that. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's not... This is, this is where a lot of criticism comes to the left from particularly centrists, and they say, you know, you're not living in the real world, it's not electable. Actually, our policies are much more electable than their policies, and not just because the context has changed. Well, so it's been a year of cultural shifts, and one of the big cultural shifts of this year that happened, I guess, in the kind of final quarter of the year was the, um, the uh, falling from grace of Harvey Weinstein. I think that's gonna be like one of the big moments of 20, when, when like historians uh, provided that we still have historians and history books in 50 years' time. Going to ban experts. We'll, we'll, come on, historians. Yeah. we'll come on to that when we talk about <laughs> climate change. Um, but, like, yeah, I think it will be remembered as a really significant cultural moment was, like, the falling of Harvey Weinstein and um, and also uh, the, the whole Me Too phenomenon mm -hmm. as a whole. Well, I'm going to start with you, Rachel, because you're a... You lady, she's a lady. <laughs> I'll have to talk through the cough suite. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it has been incredible and, and quite um, like a whole mix of things. I think for a lot of women, it was a mix of validation of, oh God, finally, finally, this is listened to. Also a lot of pain, right? Because it brings up a lot of stuff that, you know, all of us probably have been suppressing and putting to one side. And just a lot of despair at just the volume, the volume of women's lives who have been wrecked by sex harassment, sex assault, but also the lack of, um, you know, all the wasted potential, you know, like what, what could our society and our politics and our culture look like if women hadn't been routinely and, you know, systematically eliminated from public life, from political life because of you know, sex harassment and abuse, what would have happened to all that talent that was stymied and driven away? You know, so it's a very sort of frustrating moment. But I also think that 
the Weinstein um, avalanche and what that, you know, what, what has happened possibly could not have happened without Trump being elected. That it was so enraging for so many women that someone like that could be elected despite, despite his attitude to women, um, despite the wave of um, allegations of, of abuse against him, despite that sex tape where he bragged of sexual assault. Um, you know, it was so uh, infuriating for so many women. I think that what happened could not have been without the precursor of Trump being president. Yeah, I also think, I was thinking about this the other day and I was thinking, this has been coming for a long time, it's not just Trump, because I was thinking it's also, do you remember the Lord Renard scandal? Mm. Um, the Liberal Democrats. In, yeah, in yeah. 2014, when yeah. he was accused of sexual harassment. But then I think he was, he basically, like, there was an internal thing and they kind of exonerated him because they put the burden of proof quite high and said that there was no evidence. And that caused a lot of outrage. But then even before that, there was Dominic Strauss-Kahn oh. and the chambermaid. So he's the French um, politician and he was head of the, was it the He World was Bank? the head of the IMF. Oh, IMF, sorry. Yeah. And uh, he was accused by a chambermaid of mm. rape, basically, mm. and um, uh, chasing her down a corridor naked. Um, he was naked and then raping her. And he was, well, it was a very ug ugly story because her immigration status was called into <clears> question <throat> and she was intimidated in that way. And then eventually yeah. he was exonerated. And obviously, I'm not going to comment or speculate about his guilt, but I will say the fact that he was exonerated did cause a lot of anger at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, and then and obviously it's not sexual harassment or assault, but also the Oscar Pistorius case, yeah. I oh, think, yeah. is another yeah, yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that basically I think that there's been a general feeling on the part of a lot of women that essentially this is a crime that's basically legal. Mm. And I think it has been a long time coming. And I think, unfortunately, I think the way... That it's unfolded has been incredibly messy and probably not how we would have wanted to have right. it to have unfolded yeah. because what's been happening for so many years is there's been a vacuum of just injustice like a, a vacuum of justice sorry that's been created by all of these women experiencing this stuff and lots and lots of them actually coming forward but not being believed and that's created like a vacuum of justice and we've filled that vacuum with rage and despair and anger. And I think the way that we've dealt with that collectively has not always been particularly productive or the way that like that we might want to in an ideal world. But that's because of the vacuum of injustice that's been created. And I think that what we need to do now is to actually build proper mechanisms that do hold men accountable for this kind of stuff. That, that means that women's accusations are treated with credibility and um, that can deliver like real profound and genuine justice and a kind of restorative process that hopefully educates men about their behaviour along the way. Yeah. That's what I hope comes out of this. And Michael Fallon as well got, he resigned, didn't he, because of, well, there was a Julia Hartley Brewer thing when he put his hand on her knee or something and she said I, it was nothing and tried to play it down. And he resigned because he was, apparently number 10 said to him, is there anything else? And he said, I can't guarantee it. And <laughs> it's like a secretary of state, it's the defence secretary, I mean, for mm. goodness sake. I think the, the reaction to Harvey Weinstein's been very positive in a sense, because I think it's uh, underlined, educated a lot of men as to where the boundaries are, what isn't, isn't acceptable. And I think the level, the level of uh, hostility uh, towards people like that is, is an illustration of, like, I think, how far we've come as a society. However, 
I think it is still happening in every workplace, in every uh, in public space. It's happening all the time. And I, I don't know if it's a generational thing, if, if it's older men are more likely to do it. And hopefully, you know, that will change. But I think you're right, like, that, that doesn't seem to, I think because of the, for a, long, for a long time, the, um, there hasn't been that justice. Well, how would you like to have sort of played out if you could have chosen? Um, I really don't like whisper networks. I think they're really bad. Uh, so for the people who don't know what a whisper network is. I it, don't. It's basically a network that women are in where they essentially warn each other about men that might be, that might sexually harass them or whatever. And, um, and so it's an informal network of, of women and I know that there's one in London in the media industry and, there, and I know that there's one in the US media industry as well. And I really don't like it because the reason I don't like it is not, re is not particularly be because for men, men's sake, but because I think what it does is it puts all of their burden onto women to have to deal with those accusations. You know, I've had the experience of um, hearing about someone that I'm friends with who is like who's named in the US whisper network and accused of several things. You don't know whether to like believe it and to yeah. and to distance yourself from that person. You don't know whether to sort of think, well, <clears throat> that's just you know, a third hand, how do I know whether that's true or not? You think, should I warn other people? How do I manage my relationship with this person? Like actually I just think I think um so I think one thing is not having whisper networks and actually building a system where this kind of stuff can be spoken about in the open in a way that feels compassionate and without blame and without, I mean, blame towards the woman. So that's one way that I would like, something that I would like to change. But also I think, you know, one thing that we learned from the Me Too scandal is, or scandal, I would say phenomenon, is that like pretty much every woman that I know has experienced some kind of sexual yeah. harassment or assault. And that means that pretty much every man that I know must have done it at some point. And I think we need to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with these men? Like, what, yeah. what are we going to, because they're not going to, we can, yes, we can like do what we did with Michael Fallon and like get them to resign and then make them pariahs in public life. But they're not dead, they're still alive. They're yeah. still gonna work in workplaces mm. with women in them. Be a society. But yeah, they're still gonna form relationships. You know, and I think that we haven't asked ourselves, we haven't really got to the point yet of where we say, like with men like who do things like what Harvey Weinstein's been accused of, well, the answer is very simple. You, the criminal proceedings that those men need to face. And they need Why to hasn't be, he been arrested? I think he is a subject of a couple of inquiries. Yeah, there's a, yeah, yeah, there's a couple of inquiries. Particularly here, I think, here as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's obvious that that's what needs to happen. It's obvious that, like, he just needs to be kept as far away from women as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. But outside of men like that, there are millions and millions and millions of men who have done this and who are leading normal lives, who are in normal relationships, who mm. we know and are friends with. And I think we need to ask ourselves, like, what are we going to do about that? Because it's, it's patriarchy, isn't it? That's yeah, the issue. And, exactly. But that doesn't rob people of agency as well, because the danger then is, obviously, you go, well, it's a system. And yeah, I mean, it's that balance, though, isn't it, between agency and, and, and system? And yeah. because, obviously, men are not compelled to behave in certain ways, clearly, but patriarchy legitimizes a sense of, you know, a sense of male entitlement and 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 behaviour. Yeah, but I think that I mean, you know, we don't. You're you're right that it doesn't um, absolve individual men of agency. But I suppose if there is something to be heartened by in, in this conversation, I mean, it, I've I've seen now um, instances, sort of just anecdotally, where where I'm in conversation with men who who actually are saying those things now, saying, mm. well, you know, 
we are all socialized in a patriarchy and this is how I as a man have been socialized um, and starting to see the sort of cracks in the system um, and also been in conversation where, where, where um, men have been very willing to engage in the conversation and actually quite attentively listening to women discuss it and kind of asking for clarification, you know, like, slow down, can you explain this bit, tell me this bit again, like, wanting to get it, right? Um, which, which I find heartening, and that, that has got to be part of the solution, right? Having, having that capacity and openness to have those conversations. Yeah, I actually have to say, I like, obviously, like, I felt a lot of despair because over the Me Too thing, just because it's just so ubiquitous. But I have actually also felt quite optimistic about the future because so many men that I know have actually responded in a way that has been quite humble and open. Mm. And that, to me, does suggest, like, a more, a more profound change than maybe the immediate changes that yeah. you've seen as, as a result of the initial scandal, that actually maybe men are changing in a way that isn't just good for women, but also good for them. Yeah. Mm. And that's that's quite, that's good. I, I don't think, uh, this is maybe slightly controversial, but I don't think that naming and shaming people on social media is a bad thing, because as the world gets smaller and smaller because of communications and because of new platforms and new media and all that sort of stuff, in the past, you would only have lived in your little town or village. And if you did something like that, then you would be named and shamed by everyone who knew you. And that would only be the people who you lived with. And I think now, you know, that, that isn't the case anymore. People live very mobile lives. And I think there has to be a mechanism, some kind of social mechanism for holding people to account on this stuff. And that, that, the only facility I can think of that does that is Twitter. Yeah, but I don't think that, I think that Twitter is a terrible, terrible vehicle for, I, I think it's a it's an arena of social injustice, not social justice. I don't think that people, well, I'm left wing and, I, and that extends to like principles of justice. And for me, justice should be about creating long term change. It should be restorative. It should be like the aim of it should be rehabilitation. And also, you know, it should be guided by the needs of victims and also to make sure that whatever the person has done, that, that they're in a position where they can't hurt other people, cause harm to others. And I just don't think that Twitter is capable of delivering that. I, don't, I, I think we're lacking that in, in sexual harassment at the moment. And I think that Twitter is a very, very poor substitute. I think that, yes, there's been a lot of injustice around sexual harassment, but actually public shaming on social media, I think, is just another form of injustice. It's not a substitute for justice is, is what I think. And I also, you know, in my experience of the men that I know who have been involved in the Me Too scandal, when they are publicly named, the people that have good attitudes towards sexual harassment, in other words, the people who think that it should be eradicated, tend to distance themselves <laughs> because they're shocked and horrified and that person becomes, experiences a kind of social death and becomes a pariah. But what people don't see is that People with very bad attitudes towards sexual harassment, people who maybe have done it themselves, people who think that it's not a big deal, um, it's a big fuss over nothing, they then rally round that person and they say, you're the victim here, like, you did nothing wrong, this is all a big fuss over nothing. And that person then is faced with the choice of, do I try to learn from this and grow or do I allow myself to be the victim? And obviously, ultimately, it's an individual choice, right? Like, the, that person still makes their own indi individual choice and they have to take responsibility for that. 
but it's a lot easier to choose the comforting but ultimately wrong choice of considering yourself a victim if the only people who are around you are people who are encouraging you to, to see things in that way. Yeah. And so I think like public shaming on Twitter is actually in the long term bad for justice for sexual harassment survivors. I think that the process needs to be more considered and it needs to be about achieving kind of genuine change as well as, you know, being led by the safety of women at its heart. Mm. All right, so that was depressing, but we are entering a new year with the Labour Party doing extremely well in the polls. Things looking good for the left. So how are you guys feeling about 2018? I'm feeling pretty optimistic. I mean, look, uh, I think Salvation has us at 45% now. There is a polarisation in politics, obviously, uh, but I think that Jeremy Corbyn has obviously gone from strength to strength this year, and I can't see that tide turning. Um, I think he's going to be going out to lots of different marginal constituencies over the course of the next year, campaigning as if a general election were imminent, and I think it probably is imminent, actually. Uh, I don't see how they, this government's going to survive Brexit. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic in that. I think we're going to get a Labour government by the end of next year. How about yourself, Rachel? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good time to be on the left, isn't it? I mean, what, what I think is really encouraging and inspiring is not just the snap election, which obviously was a great moment, and, you know, 40% vote share for the Labour Party, having tacked left and on a left manifesto and with a left leadership, but also in terms of the sort of regeneration and the revival of, of, of the left, and, and that sort of intellectually as much as politically and in terms of policy making. So, you know, if you look at 30 years of neoliberalism where actually there hasn't, there's been a sort of stagnation, there's been a lack of kind of intellectual creativity around the left wing, you know, because because uh, neoliberalism was accepted, right? It was, there was this cross-party consensus and that wasn't just inside the politics of the Labour Party, but it bled through into, you know, universities and think tanks and you know, institutes of the establishment all sort of absorbed this paradigm. And now it seems like, well, if we've broken this paradigm, then we can revive a lot of left-wing thinking, which to me is, is really uh, exciting. And we could see glimmers of that during the election campaign. We could see glimmers of it actually in the manifesto, but also in the kind of tone and style of the campaign, which was very joined up in terms of you know, creating this kind of socialism for the 21st century. So it's not just economic policy, but it's an economic policy that's connected to being socially liberal and to being collective, like binding different people together under the same fate, migrants, workers, you know, nurses. Um, all these people all became a collective we in a way that we haven't seen in politics for a long time because it's been so atomized and individualist. But also in terms of like just going forward and looking at what can be created in terms of policy that is economically just, but also economically gender balanced and economically green balanced. So even when you look at something like uh, renationalization of utilities for which there's huge support, well, well that dovetails into green energy. When you look at nationalization of energy networks, that mm affords a possibility to also make them renewable, renewable. And that's what happened in Germany. That's why Germany is now in a situation where it's, you know, at one point this year, it was in green energy surplus. It had more uh, than it needed. Um, it's been this huge success story in green energy terms. And that's partly and not unrelatedly because it had an, a drive towards renationalization. So I look forward to seeing how all these things join up and link together and become, you know, a, a platform, a, a left-wing platform that combines all these things that we care about, the environment, 
diversity, gender issues, as well as economics. Um, I think it's a really exciting time to be developing policies like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it surreal that for the first time in my life, socialism is a meaningful political force in this country. And you know, I was born a year after 1993 defeat, after the right of the Labour Party in the form of the SDP had left, and there was a landslide defeat, and the left was blamed, you know, ad infinitum, really, for that. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I was born in the middle of a miners' strike, and the, the defeat of the miners, really, after that, the left just went into a precipitous decline. The end of the Cold War was spun as the end of any alternative, not just capitalism, but free market rapacious capitalism. So to see this suddenly, you know, this resurrection because of the the failure of neoliberalism to meet people's needs and aspirations is, is, is absolutely astonishing. I mean, I do think actually, I guess building on what Rachel said there, you know, the manifesto to me is a kind of minimum program in that... Now I think this is about pushing the envelope now, pushing the Overton window. You know, that's the kind of what's seen as politically possible at any given time. And I mean, I've been writing about, you know, things which Labour haven't committed to yet, but which I think are worth kite flying on, like a four-day week or nationalisation of the entire financial sector and public banks to... Free owls for everyone. Everyone's getting an owl. Uh, but yeah, I mean, now this is like, you know, we can talk again what about... A things pet that... owl. Yeah, everyone yeah. gets a pet owl. Huh. You remember that someone hacked Ed Miliband's Twitter account? Oh, yeah. Labour account. <laughs> Labour account. <laughs> and off... tweeted free owls for everyone. Free owls for... But I'm still waiting, Ed. Yeah. We're still waiting. But also, yeah, things like democratic public ownership, workers' ownership of industries that are far beyond yeah. utilities that yeah. are natural public monopolies and which were, frankly, publicly owned for most of the Thatcher era. And so I think now we, you know, we need to kind of be and look at the best practices abroad and mm. how we can stitch that those those together. The, 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 the fear that just on that, and I'd like to hear everyone on this really kind of... Well, the one is polarisation in terms of concerns polarisation which Matt refers to because what we've seen is a revival of the two-party system we're back to you know the two parties combined are back have the same you know the highest combined share since 1970 and that's because I think we've got older people who have been protected largely from austerity in fact income I mean there are lots of older people who live in poverty 1.9 million but, but the living standards overall have, have, have gone up and also they're the most socially conservative section of the population Younger people, on the other hand, have suffered, well, the working age population have suffered the worst fall in wages of any country other than Greece, of, of the industrialised OECD countries, and are far more socially uh, liberal or whatever you want to call it. So the, the, the danger now is you've got a chunk of the population, a polarised bloc, who are kind of an anti-socialist bloc, who fear the rise of the left, and then another one which has nothing to lose from the end of this current system, everything to gain. But on that, the, the, it's the election thing which I'm interested in, which Matt <coughs> talks about, because... So we've got this fixed-term Parliament Act. You could look at this year and think, well, that meant horseshit, didn't it? Look, that was mm. not worth the paper it's written on. But that's a different thing, isn't it? Because an opposition can never really... That's the whole point why it was bollocks. An opposition can never turn down an opportunity handed to them by a government to have to get rid of them. It just, it's not credible. It looks ridiculous. But the Conservatives, privately, their MPs, genuinely think that Labour coming to power would mean a Marxist dictatorship and tyranny. That's how, what, well, how they... We can only hope. <laughs> Fingers crossed. That's going to be that's gonna be clipped out of, uh, out of, all, out, out of context. But I yeah. Say, this, that was Ellie speaking. I take full responsibility and re represent only myself. Ellie, send them to the... She's wearing a send them all to the Gulags t-shirt. That's that's definite, by the way. That's not a joke. Yeah, I mean, on 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 that though, because some Tory MPs would have to vote for general election. You, want, you get a general election either by two-thirds majority of MPs voting for it, or a vote of no confidence, which then gives two weeks for another party to form a, a government, otherwise there's another election. And in my head, why would you be those Tory MPs who go down in history as the people who made 
Corbyn comes about because we all agree that a general election means a Labour government under Corbyn would be exceptionally likely. So that's what I'm genuinely interested in. I don't know. And I'm at the moment doing this campaigning with momentum, unseat, targeting marginal seats like Boris Johnson's and Ian Duncan Smith's and so on in preparation for an election. But I don't still see the scenario that would mean the Tories, given they're likely to lose an election to a Labour party under its most radical leadership ever, why would they... Uh, genuinely, that's uh, what I don't understand. I, I think it's because Parliament will not approve the deal and it's a de facto vote of no confidence in the government if they don't approve the deal. Don't think that... But why do you think that? That's such a huge thing for them to do. Because be it will either shit. be no deal or it will be shit. And there's no way that Parliament will approve it. So I think that we'll either end up general election or even go as far as maybe revoking Article 50. I don't, I don't see how this is going to work out. At the end of the year, it's a play out with the Tories in government as it is now. There's far too much at stake and there's far too many hoops for them to jump through. But on that, so, right, so for example, there's a bad deal. Anna Subri and the lot, you know, they've already now been plastered on the front page of the Daily Mail after rebelling last week against um, um, the government on, on Brexit in terms of a meaningful vote on Brexit terms. And the Daily Mail plastered their pic, their, the picture of the Tory rebels and specifically damned them for making a Marxist government more likely. A Marxist in number 10, it warned. What do you... In, Again, we can but hope. I mean... <laughs> Again, so, Ellie yeah. speaking. <laughs> it's, you're all getting nationalised, every single one of you. And your kids. But you end up then in a situation where you can end up then, if Parliament rejects the deal, a no deal plus, as they see it, a radical Marxist government coming to power. I don't... That's why I think to myself, will Anna Subi and the rest really rebel when they've got at the at the prospect? They will be told in no uncertain terms, if you rebel against this, Anna, you will lose your seat. She's got only a few hundred majority in Broxtow. Broxtow's theirs for Labour's taking. Why would she... I don't understand. That's why I'm still kind yeah. of like, right. I worry that she will end up, because she's only rebelled once, she's voted for everything, including on Brexit, every single thing over and over again, this is the only vote they've lost, when it really comes to a deal and the prospect of rejecting a deal plus what they think is a radical communist government that's going to nationalise everything, I, that's, the, that's my worry. Well, there's a lot of Remain voters in her constituency, so she wouldn't necessarily lose her, her seat if she tried to you know, block Brexit in some way. Oh, she'd lose in an election. Well, I don't know. It's, if, if she doesn't lose, we don't have a Labour government. <clears throat> that's the problem. We'd, we'd end up with the same result we have now because she's got majority of 300. If we can't win box, though, we're, we're toast, really. Well, I think it's difficult to, to judge it, I think. There's the, maybe the you, local electorate would you, take pity on her for yeah, sacrificing maybe. herself for Jeremy. I think she's going to lose whatever happens <laughs> in the next election. And whether that's in three years or whether that's in one year, I think she's still going to lose. But she's, I think she's, maybe she's more likely to get the yeah, local popular vote support if she... But I think it goes back to what you were saying about this sort of generational shift and the, the sort of stratification of the electorate and now it's like the older people who all read newspapers, who by and large voted for Brexit, who by and large vote Tory and as you say young people with nothing to lose and no memories of Berlin Wall and you know, Soviet Union and 1983 and all that stuff. Look. I don't think we can ever win those people over, mm. really. I think the best we could hope for is that they don't turn up to vote. I don't think we're going to win over people who read the Daily Express or the Daily Mail every day. And to be honest, I wouldn't want to compromise on our programme in order yeah, to do it. I mean, what we've really got to do is increase turnout amongst younger people. That's and, right. And expand young... the electorate. Yeah. Exactly. But you're right. I mean, I suppose if we end up in this you know, circumstance of chaos and all the rest of it, we have to have a national movement that makes it almost politically impossible not to have an election. I suppose that's the challenge. Do you think there's going to be an election next year, Rachel? I mean, it's impossible to read, isn't it? But I do think, you know, as, as Matt says, there's something unsustainable about this and, mm. you know, events, right, mm -hmm. over the next year. But I think going back to, you know, what the, the people who, the Conservatives who rebelled 
to allow Parliament a vote on the final deal, which is what Matt was talking about. I, I think something snapped, actually. I think mm. that we saw it snap during the election, which was, which was you know, the, 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 the power of, of the right-wing tabloid press collapsed, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and it mm -hmm. collapsed. People, people actually got irritated by it, mm -hmm. you know, to the extent that, you know, one newspaper had this, what was it, a 13-page tirade against the yeah. Labour leadership. And Some Tory MPs were saying that when they were canvassing, people would say to them, it feels like you're bullying this guy right. about Jeremy. Mm. Yeah. But I think, I think that, that that breakage that, that we saw happen in the election has extended into the way that the right-wing press has gone nuts over, over Brexit mm -hmm. and the kind of really toxic, dangerous climate mm. that they have been cultivating, mm -hmm. you know, calling uh, politicians who are trying to bring parliamentary accountability to the Brexit process, calling them mutineers and traitors. Mm. Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, they then receive lots of uh, death th threats to that effect. You know, I, th I think that that has broken the, the the kind of power that they had mm. over over society. And we came into this this year, 2017, with them very much controlling, you know, this kind of authoritarian social conservatism, ethno-nationalism, chauvinism that seemed to pervade, be pervading our society, broke with the election. And I think it's continuing to break with even right-wing politicians actually saying, no, this this is not okay. This is not the sort of society that, that we want. So, so I, I don't think it's necessarily possible to predict what those MPs will do if Theresa May comes back with a shit deal, which she will. Mm. I mean, the EU mm. has made it quite clear. Mm. You're not getting a special deal. Mm. You're getting either Canada or Norway. You're not getting Canada plus, plus, plus. We'll go through the next three months mm. with the Conservatives thinking that they can. They can't. Mm -hmm. You know, those are your choices. So it's not like there's going to be a deal that... I would imagine someone like Anna Soubry would would be happy with, right? So, and, and, and you're gonna, and with the Brexiteers, if it is, you know, however you want to characterise it, soft Brexit or whatever, it will be like, oh, well, we never had real Brexit, you yeah. know, and, and it, stabbed in the back, and, and they're not going to be happy, and mm. then the Remainers aren't going to be happy, no. and it's actually going to split the Conservative Party more than everyone said the Brexit vote would split mm. the Labour Party. I think after this, this year, they're going to, it's going to really split them. Well, I thought I'm just praying Matt's right, and then we'll just end up with socialism pretty well, soon. That'd I am nice. and I'm not, because I'm pitching a book at the moment, and it'll really ruin my thesis. Oh, <laughs> you're right. Well, in that case, <laughs> you so know, if you can hold off on an election, yeah. Yeah. I know we all want socialism, but I also need to get paid. So. It would also wreck yeah, chapter two of my new book, so... I mean, let's get our priorities yeah. right. I mean, yeah. do we want the entire nation to suffer, or do we want you two to have your books? It the second one. Yeah, the just, second one. Just sounds a little bit selfish on Matt's part. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. All right. Well, um, happy Christmas and a happy New Year and festive greetings to all of our listeners. It's and been then... an absolute delight, you two. Yeah. Come, babes. Thanks. Thank you for it's coming. It's been a pleasure to be here. Um, and get thanks. well soon to both of you because both of you have got colds. But they still, you know, sacrificed. Yeah, they still, still did it. pulled out of the bag. Um, and there's one final thing, which is I have actually prepared a Christmas present for our listeners because we've been getting a lot of activity on our um, account asking us what the theme music is for this podcast. Obviously, we've got Christmas music today, so it's not the right one. But um, so therefore, I've taken it upon myself to make us a Agitpod Spotify playlist, which has <laughs> the theme music and lots of my favourite protest and political music on it so that's in our bio so merry christmas from yeah. us to you enjoy the tunes happy socialist christmas everyone 
Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy Winterval. Politically <laughs> correct. So there's always oh, one, isn't there? That'll be a Daily Mail headline in the <laughs> All right, bye, guys. Bye. bye. Most wonderful time.